been discussing, where we started, is that the world in which you and I live was once the paradise of God that has not only been marred by a curse, but has been subjected to futility. And both of these things come from God, the curse and the pointlessness. The meaninglessness of life under the sun, however, on earth is the work of God to drive us to our only hope of rescue in Jesus Christ. Listen to these first two verses once again. He writes, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This is the message that King Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived besides Jesus, is sharing with us in the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're learning that one of the gifts that um, the wisdom literature gives to us is a language, uh, a believer's language for sorrow, for weeping, a language for the frustration, the confusion, and emptiness that we feel even as believers in this world. The Bible, all of it, is inspired by God. It is God who is ultimately saying to us then, meaninglessness. Everything is meaninglessness. It's God who inspired words like, I hated life. God gave us an unhappy business to be busy with. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. God wrote those things through Solomon. So the book of Ecclesiastes becomes a very close friend to those who know what it is to have deep questions and not to have any easy answers for them. It's an unsettling book, make no mistake, but it's a beautiful gift that God has given to us. Let me pray and we'll talk some more about it. Father, we thank you for your word and for your truth. And God, I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would enable me to preach the word in such a way that we all can hear and believe and understand, so watch over me as I speak, watch over everyone who listens, we ask and pray to know Christ better, and to know Him more, we ask and pray for these things in His name, Amen. One of the keys to understanding Ecclesiastes as we're going to walk through this book is recognizing the different ways Solomon is trying to, or that Solomon uses to communicate his point to us, it's, it's varied, Solomon is a poet, He's a poet king, to be exact, which means he's exactly like his dad, David. 1, 4 through 11, really 3 through 11 is pure poetry when we get into it next week. In verses 4 to 7, he starts to talk about the sun, right? And, and he does this all along the way. He uses poetry time and time again. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 is a text that um, is so meaningful to people that the birds, you remember in the 1960s, the song, Turn, 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 that comes out of this text. It's fit for poetry. He does it all along the way. Uh, once you grow accustomed to Paul's letters, though, for example, Ecclesiastes almost sounds foreign, right? Poetry, for some reason, um, it, it's like it isn't suited to communicate divine truth. Like we think it's something less, but of course it's suited to communicate divine truth. It just does it differently. It's not straightforward. It's wisdom literature. God is inviting us to think. Jesus was a poet, beloved. This, this is how Jesus, the king, spoke sometimes. Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Israel's kings often speak in poetry. Poetry can make us think that truth is being watered down. 
Like it's not really talking about the deep things of God, but it's used so much in Scripture, particularly in wisdom literature. literature. So apparently it's not only meaningful, it's necessary for the believer. It, It doesn't arrive at the truth by proposing to answer our questions. Instead, it invites us into where the answers can be found. It doesn't solve our problems, but it gives us a language to work through them. Zach Eswine calls poetry in Ecclesiastes the unanswered language of invitation. So Ecclesiastes is filled with poetry. There are also proverbs in Ecclesiastes, in texts like chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, that starts out, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Here, rather than being invited to consider the ant, for example, Solomon in verse 13 invites us to consider the work of God. And he says, who can make straight what he has made crooked? That's, that's extremely important for believers to remember. Why is the world crooked? Because God made it crooked. We're to consider that. Why did he do that? What does that mean? That there's, there's more to the curse than just now you're going to die. The curse is also now life isn't going to have any meaning. So we're, we're meant to think about this. And if it's God who made it crooked, what does that tell us about him? What does that tell us about us? Proverbs, we talked a little bit last week about it, raise questions. They make you want to figure things out and grapple with what they're presenting. Proverbs don't account for all the different aspects of life. They, they point out truisms in the world. They force us into unanswered facts, so to speak. That's actually what wisdom does. And wisdom does it in the Bible, often through the medium of poetry and Proverbs. So, in other words, if everything is meaningless, then a funeral does make a lot more sense than a wedding, right? There's something better about what's taking place at a funeral than there is at a wedding as it pertains to what wisdom is. We learn in Ecclesiastes, he's not saying it's more fun to go to one, to go to a funeral, than it is to a wedding, or more happy or joyful. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's something better about what's taking place at a funeral than what's taking place at a wedding as it pertains to what wisdom is. Communicating to us in Proverbs, then, means, interestingly, that the author is willing to risk us getting it wrong at first. When we think about it, the purpose is to make us arrive at answers by wrestling with them. That's the kind of truth that you hold on to more tightly, isn't it? When you, when you had to work to earn the knowledge that you got from something. We'll learn better if we have to make what we hear our own and put it into our own words and try to grapple with it and figure it out. Wisdom doesn't just give you everything on a silver platter. So we can't expect that as we go into Ecclesiastes, there will be moments where we're grappling with what we're hearing and and the answers aren't coming right away. It's not as straightforward. So yes, it's unsettling at times, especially when we consider that the source of that is God's word to us. But beloved, it's also very dignifying when you really stop and think about God. God is literally sitting down and talking with us in a sense through Solomon. He's slowing us down. He's inviting us to work through some things. It's not just information we must accept. It is that, but it isn't delivered to us in that way. God invites us to engage with him and, by extension, each other. There's a 
an American writer named Wendell Berry, maybe you've heard of him, he, he said, explanations are buckets, not wells. Explanations are buckets, not wells. Think, think about that. Explanations catch what's going on in the world. You don't draw life from them, though. But even more so, how much can a bucket hold compared to how much a well can hold? God is not simple. We don't have the ability to contain him, beloved. And the world God created is not simple. We should not act like it is, even as believers. Not once God cursed it and subjected it to futility. Now to think we can explain God or reality in just a few sentences like it's easy is is just naive. A, A world subjected to futility with people in it who've had eternity written on their hearts, a world like that is not going to be simplistic. Poetry and Proverbs, wisdom literature, pushes us towards the well, not buckets, right? So through Ecclesiastes, God is showing us that he's a poet, that God is wise. He's also uh, willing to wait for us to figure things out. Um invites us to slowly sort out things, and he's willing to leave some things unexplained. That's important. John Calvin talks about how God, when he speaks to us, speaks with what he calls a lisp, which doesn't mean a speech impediment. When John Calvin said when God speaks to us, he he speaks with a lisp, that was the word they used for baby talk. That that's how you spoke to a baby. You lisped to a baby. So to master the scriptures is to master God's baby talk. That, that, that's how he's speaking to us. This, this, he's, he's not dumbing anything down, but he's talking to us in a way that we are able to slowly grasp things. The Bible's a bucket, but it's the bucket because it reveals Jesus Christ to us, but it doesn't necessarily explain God. God is the well. It's like uh, when, when you try to define what love is precisely, People will often go to 1 Corinthians 13 and say that's what love is. It's, it's describing it. It's not explaining it. And, and God is the well. We, we, we understand things about him, but it's not really fully explained to us. Now, we're not saying, by the way, that you can't know things, that it's impossible to know anything, as if there's only mystery, and so you can't be sure of anything. No, we're saying the opposite, actually. We can know a substantial amount of things, but we can't know them exhaustively. Which means, beloved, if we're being honest, we're always left in a place of humility, in a place where really we need more. C.S. Lewis said uh, in that same book, later, after he's worked through his grief to some degree and is coming back around, he says this about trying to understand all of it. He says, five senses, an incurably abstract intellect, a haphazardly selective memory, a set of preconceptions and assumptions so numerous that I can never examine more than a minority of them, never become even conscious of them all, how much of a total reality can such an apparatus let through? Talking about himself, about human beings. Ecclesiastes is so helpful to us because it makes us ponder the fact that despite all we can know, we're able to actually make sense of very little which is a liberating thing. And so Solomon not only uses poetry and Proverbs, 
He uses questions, right? Look at verse 3 in chapter 1. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is the first time he asked that question, but he's going to ask it in one form or another over and over again throughout the book. It's, it's, it's part of the theme. Notice that that question immediately begs for an answer. Yeah, what do we gain by all the toil under the sun? And he doesn't give you an answer. He doesn't give one. He just launches into poetry. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa stop. Go back. Answer the question. No, he doesn't. He doesn't answer the question, at least not right away. The congregation wants an answer right away. Of course we do. But he doesn't give it. Our Lord Jesus basically asks the same question, doesn't he? What, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That, that idea doesn't change. Mark 8, 36, what Jesus is asking. What good is it to work all your life? Gain all the wealth you possibly can and then you're going to die. What if you've done all that and you lose your own soul? He's, he's basically asking the same question Solomon is. What gain is there in all of that? What, what good is it to do this? And so if you were to make a list of all the questions that Solomon asks in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is really fun to do, just, just go through and write out the questions and the ones you find in the rest of wisdom literature, you might be surprised to find that most of the questions that human beings have always been asking are in the wisdom literature. Um, it's, it's, it's so, which means it's not really healthy for Christians to believe you can't ask questions. Uh, again, there, there's a, we'll talk about it in a second. There's a way of asking questions that is disrespectful, right? Unbelieving, over, sinfully cynical. Absolutely. We don't deny that. But there's also a way of asking questions that honors God very much. Um, Folly. Apparently it's divine wisdom to ask some of these questions. Right? It, it, it would be folly to pretend things are so cut and dry that you can't struggle through them. That would be folly. That would be denying the complexity God has woven into the world. If we try to pretend like the answers are just cut and dry, they are not. Again, so often it brings us back to grief. Again, grief, you just have to endure it, I think. There, there's really not a way to easily work through that. But that's part of life in the world. We're going to have to face it at some point. But but again, folly would be to pretend like things are so cut and dry that you can't struggle. My dad's calling me right now. <laughs> he knows I'm in. <laughs> so I just saw that pop up on my phone. That, that's a first. Um, <laughs> but again, folly would be to pretend things are so cut and dry that, it, that it's, it's, it's just wrong to struggle. It's wrong to try to work through things. It, it, it isn't, not automatically. That, that's the way, thinking like that, that you can't ask questions, you can't struggle, you can't doubt. That's the way to a kind of frustration that will actually harden our hearts towards God and will not lead to humility. God can handle it. Remember, He knows that we are dust. But again, do we remember that? Do we keep that in mind? Because there is a way of asking questions as we just spoke about, that's actually not even asking at all. There's a disrespectful way to ask questions. Think about Pilate answering back to Jesus when Jesus said that he bears witness to the truth in John 18. Pilate says, what is truth? Pilate is not asking what truth is. He's not trying to find out what it is. He's, he's waving away Jesus' statement as though truth, no one can know what the truth is. What do you mean you're on the side of the truth? That's not what the questions of Ecclesiastes are. 
right? They're not asked like that. Uh, if God inspired these questions, it's acceptable for us to ask them at least. Again, Solomon is speaking to us as human beings. We're, we're not only believers, we're not only Christians, we're creatures. And it's, it's so important to remember that Solomon requires no knowledge of the covenants, no knowledge of Israelite history, or any of those things. This book is for humanity. Right? Have, have you ever thought about that? We, we always tend to think things are so different now from how they used to be, right? There, there's no limit to the amount of classes and books and resources on how to talk to unbelievers, right? Why? When did it become so difficult to have a conversation? Why has that now become so hard to do? We don't have all the answers either. Right? We, we, we just don't. We can't answer every question. You don't need to. You can't account for every scenario. I, I just from personal experience a little bit, the, the biggest effect I've had on my, on, on an unbelieving nephew-in-law I have is not that I can answer all his questions. I, I can't. It's that I was willing to meet with him and talk with him like two normal people. And I, I don't, that's not real. I'm not bragging. What's, what would there be to brag about? You're sitting down and talking with somebody. That, 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 that is extremely important instead of always approaching people like it's a project and you got to get them to the conversion point and the prayer point and, and we can't account for everything. What's, what's wrong with having a conversation with people like you're two human beings because you are, right? Your salvation has not made you not human. Right? That's not what it does. Two people having a conversation, both of whom are trying to figure this thing out, might go a much longer way than a canned presentation that you have to speak so awkwardly to pull off. Right? It's, it's, there was a day and time maybe when, when the culture was different that those questions would have had meaning, like evangelism explosion, James Kennedy. Um, you knock on a door, somebody opens the door. If you were to die right now, and stand before God, and he would say, why should I ask you into my heaven, or why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? There was a time when the majority of people at least believed that that was going to happen when you die, and you have to stand before God. Now, you have no idea if that's where people are. Uh, I'm not going to stand, be- what are you talking about? There's no God. I'm not going to stand before God when I, I so, it's, 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 yes, we're Christians, but we're also humans. There are opportunities to engage and talk with people that we don't have to work or create some clever way to open the door. It's just having a conversation sometimes, not all the time, right? There's a time for preaching. That's different. But often when, when you hear someone say something about the frustration of life in this world or the pain of death, the certainty of taxes and all that, beloved, they're wrestling with the questions Ecclesiastes is already asking. They're there. They're asking these things, just talk about it with them. You don't need to be certified in anything. Your humanity certifies you. Not every question necessarily has to have an answer. Right? That, that, the, the world is not created that way. If it, if, if it were, the Bible would give all the answers, and it doesn't. It doesn't do that. Sometimes the conversation itself reveals the need for Jesus on its own terms. You, you, you don't have to become expert salesmen. And there are people that are gifted as evangelists, but that's a spiritual gift. It's, it's 
Not really common. John Calvin talked about, again, talked about something he called double knowledge. That is, we, we know God in one of two ways. By contemplating God and or by contemplating ourselves. In many books of the Bible, the emphasis is on contemplating God, isn't it? Romans, Philippians, even the Psalms sometimes really, the Gospels of course. The person of God is front and center in those books. Other books of the Bible, however, uh, insist on you and I contemplating ourselves as we read them. Ecclesiastes, Esther, God isn't even mentioned in the book of Esther. It's almost like God is in the background of Ecclesiastes while Solomon is asking, what gives? That's what it feels like as you read it. He's, he's talking about himself. He's talking about the world. But we have to remember he's doing it as a divinely wise man. He does that with wisdom. He starts from the recognition of God, that God is the creator, sustainer of reality, but he's looking at the world as it's presenting itself to him. Ecclesiastes forces us to take an honest look at who we actually are and what the world is actually like for the purpose of knowing God in it. There are questions we ask about the world and about ourselves that will take us straight to the reality of our Creator then. Back to what we're talking about earlier. Those are straight lines to God in the Gospel that people hand to us every day right in the middle of our conversations. Jesus doesn't give all the answers when he comes. Right? You don't have to answer every question for somebody to be saved. Right? That, that, that's not what's necessary. Don't run from that. Right? Don't run from it inside yourself. Don't run from it when you're talking to others. Because, beloved, the fact that the emphasis in Ecclesiastes is on contemplating ourselves does not mean it isn't centered on God. He made us. Jesus Christ is our prophet our priest and our king, but beloved, he is also our sage. He is the wise man. He is wisdom. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.24 He not only redeems our lives from sin and death, he speaks wisdom to our souls under the sun also. So he not only fulfills the royal literature, the priestly Levitical literature, the prophetic literature, of course, he also fulfills the wisdom literature. And what it points us to. In fact, when Jesus, in his life, when he's living and teaching in the New Testament, he's mostly the priest and the wise man. That's mostly who he is throughout his earthly life. The cynicism of Ecclesiastes is sacred cynicism. Solomon is cynical about people, like Jesus was. Right? He's, He's not cynical about God, He doubts the power and ability of people, but he doesn't doubt God. Solomon assumes God the whole time. God is why Solomon has these questions. If you're there, why is it like this? It's the presence and reality of God that make things so difficult to accept as they are or to figure out. He's even assuming the sovereignty of God when he talks about the unhappy business God has given to the children of men. He doesn't have any disparaging remarks for God. Jesus groaned when the unbelief of the people persisted. He wept. He was moved with pity. He asked questions at the end. There's a cynicism or at the very least a frustration with the way things are under the sun that is divine. That's godly. In the Proverbs when he writes that, remember, um, 
a person seems right until another person comes and, and tells you their part of the story. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing, but there's, there's a, um, there's a wise cynicism or skepticism there about what truth is, right? That it seems like a person is right. And then another person comes along and it seems like they're right. In other words, is it that right doesn't exist and you can't know the truth? No, it's that it's very hard to discover most of the time. Sometimes it will take time. Right does exist, but sometimes you have to hear more before you can recognize it, which is one of the reasons why Jesus comes along and says in John 7, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Right judgment takes time, patience. We don't want to do that. Again, we want everything to be deductive, not inductive. We want to know up front and then figure it out if we want to. But the world that God has made doesn't work that way. Solomon doesn't pretend to understand God exhaustively. He doesn't pretend to understand the world that God has made. But he never doubts that God is or that God has made it. That's not what he's doing. Solomon doesn't even go as far as Job does. Um, Job questioned the very goodness of God at certain points. Solomon doesn't even go that far. He's, he's doubtful and skeptical of what life under the sun can deliver, but, but not about God. That's not what he's doing. That's folly, right? Skepticism without the recognition of God leads to folly. Skepticism without humility leads to folly. Folly pulls us away from wisdom, right? Folly uh, tries to pull us out of it, out, out of that kind of thinking. Folly wants to make us respond foolishly. Folly speeds up trouble. It speeds up difficulty. This, I, I, this is something about this book that just I, I, makes me so excited to get into it. Right? Solomon will end up saying that there's nothing better under the sun than to eat, to drink, to work, to enjoy your wife. You could say enjoy your spouse and the lot you've been given. That sounds very secular, doesn't it? That there's nothing better than just eating and drinking, working, enjoy your spouse, enjoy the lot you've been given. That sounds so secular. Beloved, Sidney Gradonis says that it sure sounds like Ecclesiastes is a meditation on how the world was in the early chapters of Genesis. Solomon knows this world was once Eden. All there is now is memory and pain in a world that was once paradise, but has been cursed and subjected to futility. In Ecclesiastes 7, God created man upright, but he has sought out many schemes. They bent him over. Notice that? In chapter 3, he contemplates how it was God who gave us the good gift of the seasons and time for all things, even for our work. And I agree with Zach Eswine here. What if what Ecclesiastes is doing by showing us the vanity of life under the sun is seeking to recover Eden? What if that's what this is all about? He's like that tour guide in London in 1945 
He knows what once was, but now he only sees what it has become, which is why he's so upset and would speak so passionately from his heart. What is this under the sun? In the beginning, it was very good, God said. In the beginning, it was perfect, Eden. So whatever Eden was, was very good, perfect. And now look at it. That's why there's what seems like angst and a truly broken heart, because it's all become meaningless. There's more to do now than there was in the garden. How did, How is that meaningless? Beloved, Ecclesiastes is meant to make us feel homesick. It's meant to make us feel homesick. This gets so close to the very heart of all faith, of all Christianity, to the whole world. How did we ever come to think that the Great Commission is more about like publishing books than it is about planting gardens, literally? How... How did this happen? We, we have to make such a big deal out of ourselves. We take ourselves so seriously when the Bible reminds us again and again that we are dust, a vapor, in a world without meaning. When God wanted to reveal himself and make himself known, when God wanted to go on mission to begin and achieve his purpose, what's the first thing he did? He planted a garden. What God originally created in Eden is everything Ecclesiastes is longing for. Now think about this. What was the original creation, beloved? What did God create us to do? I'm not trying to be crass. Hear me out. It was to find someone to love and cling to for the rest of your life, have lots of babies, tend a garden together until it covered the whole earth. And you know what? That was paradise. That was it. That's all there was. And what did God call just that? Just simple, get up, love the people in front of you, work your garden, go to bed, get up, do it again. That was very good Perfect. No problems, no issues, no strife, no conflict. Perfect. And we would think of that as, what a waste. Of course we think of that as a waste. We're sinners. Beloved, that was paradise. That's what it looks like. And what did we do? Sought out many schemes. Just kept adding and adding and adding and adding. We just had to insert ourselves and improve on it, didn't we? Only human beings would think they know paradise better than God. That, that's why... Well, don't, don't talk to me about morality when it comes to the message of Christianity. Morality misses it entirely as the center of the Christian message. Behavior. When did that become necessary? Not in paradise. There was no rule book in paradise. There was don't eat that tree. Don't be like me. That was it. Morality became necessary because we just had to have the knowledge of good and evil. That's how morality was introduced into the world. It's not the design of God for you and I to live by rules. We were not created to need rules to be good people. 
where we're created to live without giving right and wrong a second thought and letting God worry about it. You just love your spouse, have babies, tend the garden, live, sleep, die, or not even die, right? I mean, someone's been fighting for what is right since Cain. And all that's ever done is get people killed. Of course it does. Since if you do them, you will live by them was introduced into the world. Because if you don't, someone will kill you for it. You'll die. Christianity is for returning us to Eden. Where God has taken care of everything. It's not there to remind us of the fall and of the curse. It's not there to keep singing that song to our souls. It's not rules and death and threats. It's the restoration of paradise. Of rest. Remember the seventh day? Remember that was the goal every human week? To just stop for a minute and bask in all of it? What Jesus Christ is doing is recovering the heart of man so that this war we have with God and this war we have with creation and his original design for it will finally stop, will end. And then what will we do? We'll finally sit down and eat in peace with all the ordinary gifts he delighted to give us in an eternal Eden. In the midst of all this Sacred cynicism. Ecclesiastes just keeps saying, so the only thing to do is enjoy what you have and thank God for it. This is your lot here. That sounds very much like paradise. Like Eden. Eat, drink, be fruitful and multiply, tend your lot, tend your garden. That, that doesn't sound secular. That sounds like what was very good and what was paradise. Could you imagine that? Just to live your life with no pressure with the people that you love the most. To enjoy your work. Right? Just day in and day out. I was listening to a class on Ecclesiastes and the the speaker said, I I thought this was wonderful. When we read the New Testament letters, for example, who do we identify ourselves with right away? With the apostles. With the authors. Like that's the goal. That's the goal of faith, to be like Paul, right? What if we're meant to identify ourselves with the people to whom they were writing? Right? I'm not Paul. None of us are Paul. None of us are Peter or John or Luke or Mark. I'm a West Virginian now. I'm an Ephesian. I'm a Galatian. I'm a Colossian. Why is the constant message to Christians that there's more we should be doing all the time? We always have to be more radical, more committed. If you really want to serve the Lord, what do you have to do? You have to preach or teach or sing or get martyred. That's kingdom work, right? That's kingdom work. Be more radical. The thing is, most of us are just Ephesians. Just Colossians. And what does Paul tell them to do? What does Paul tell Christian husbands to do? Love your wife. Right? What does Paul tell children to do? Obey your mom and dad. What does Paul tell slaves to do? Obey your masters in everything. Submit to them. 
It's all kingdom work. That's what that is. Right? We feel like there's a gap for what honors God between the nursery and the pulpit. Baloney. Baloney. I'll take preaching over changing 50 diapers any day. Right? Beloved, it's all that kind of work was what paradise was. Think, think, think about churches for a minute. All right, let's, let's, let's be honest. Pastors are a dime a dozen. We come and go. Right? I, I hate to say that. I mean, but we come and go. Right? It, it's, we, we've done, we, we pastors have been doing this for who knows how long. Right? You, you ever notice that when it's God's will for a pastor to move on, it's never God's will that you went to a smaller church for less money? Isn't that weird? Right? It's always God's will that you go to the bigger one for more money? Really? No way! It's never God's will that you go be obscure somewhere where nobody will know your name. Nobody will care about you. The people remain, though. Right? If, if, if something happened to me tonight or I decided to leave, which I'm, I'm not, but like if I decided to leave on Wednesday or something, you'll be right here next Sunday, I bet. You wouldn't stop coming because I quit, right? The people remain. And, and look, they're not pastors. They're not itinerant missionaries in the pews normally. They're miners and pipe fitters and housewives and realtors and accountants and public officials and firemen and waitresses and waiters and librarians. And they're human creatures trying to figure out how to best cultivate their lot. That's what, that's what a congregation is. It's what a pastor is. We just, for the sake of the discussion, I'm making a distinction, right? Sometimes we pastors can make you feel like it's not enough to be just what you are. When Ecclesiastes says there's nothing better than that. Does that, does that make sense? Sometimes I can make you, we pastors can make you feel like if you're not leaving everything to go to Uganda or Rwanda, which I'm not insulting that. Please don't hear that. I, I don't, that's not what I mean. What I mean is, is that we can make you feel like you're not really serious about God unless you're doing that. When Ecclesiastes would say to just tend your lot is paradise. Right? You know what, you know what, if there's a way to trick meaninglessness, it's to enjoy everyday life. That comes from God. Because how, why do you not enjoy it? Because there has to be more. There has to be more. I have to be doing more. I have to accomplish more. I just get up every day, go do my job, come home. I'm not accomplishing anything. Nobody knows my name. I'm not making a ton of money. I'm not doing a lot. Beloved, that's the fall in you. That's the curse. There's something so amazingly, profoundly divine about loving your spouse, loving your kids, doing your work, enjoying it, enjoying your time, going to sleep, getting up and doing it again. That's paradise, almost. I mean, we still got to do it now in a fallen world, a feudal world, but that, that's, those are whispers in us of how it was meant to be. Right? That's, that's not the fall. That's paradise saying, let me back in. And Ecclesiastes, like no other book in the Bible, is just, I think that's what Solomon is doing. He's, he's very wisely, remember how smart he is, very wisely saying that, what it used to be, that was very good. That was very good. Now it's a mess. 
Now we can't stop working. Now we can't stop getting, earning, burning our time. You always feel like you're wasting your time if you're just sitting with your family or reading a book. No, it's, it's, it's not a waste of time. Enjoy it. It's a gift of God to remind you that something is coming that will be all of that. Ecclesiastes is so, and, and, and the thing is, the amazingly ironic thing is, is that if you and I cultivate lives that are like that, where you're just tending your lot, enjoying your life, thankful to God for it, you'll become way more evangelistic than you will ever realize. Ecclesiastes is so countercultural to American church culture. We are human doings here, not human beings. We're convinced we have to make a difference, right? Achieve when the lot that won't rip out your soul with meaninglessness is to tend your own lot and be happy with it. That's very godly, very glorifying to God to rest and enjoy it. The way we've often thought about evangelism makes Ecclesiastes a very difficult book to deal with. This is kind of how I want to head for home tonight. We, we, we have to mess with Ecclesiastes. We can't just let it stand, right? Because it couldn't possibly mean what it looks like it means, but it does. Maybe he's showing us how bad everything is so that he can show us the gospel. And you read and keep waiting, and he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. So we need to recognize how... God is drawing us to himself in this book, in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is very different. The way God is drawing us here is very different than like a tent revival in the south. It's, it's, it's not the same thing. Ecclesiastes starts with God as creator, number one, not as redeemer. Right? That's very interesting. Most of the book is about the God who created us rather than the God who redeems us. It's not that he won't or doesn't imply that God is our redeemer, but that's not the emphasis of Ecclesiastes. We learn to look at life under the sun while assuming the existence of God in it. God is the one who governs the seasons and the circumstances and all physical reality. Ecclesiastes looks at God as creator. Secondly, Solomon writes as a human being, not a Jewish person specifically. He's using his creature identity as a starting point. Again, that's why the language is so inclusive and it's much easier for us to identify with it. Thirdly, it's inductive. So he's not handing out a tract here, right? And, and again, don't, if you do that, don't be insulted by that. I'm not going after it wholesale. I'm talking about Ecclesiastes. Most common approaches to evangelism, what are they? Basically, they're very, there's no room for discussion or questions. None, right? This is the problem with life under the sun. You have that problem. I don't. Here's the solution. Done. Accept it. Pray. Right? The way Ecclesiastes gets there, though, is to say, can you believe that life is like this? This stinks. And the person says, I, I know. I know. What, what's the deal with that? What gives? And we both end up saying something like, well, there's a God. He's... He's given us one unhappy business to try to deal with, hasn't he? That, that, that unbeliever is quoting scripture to you. If they say something like that, right? They don't even know it. But why is it like this? 
is meaningless. I feel like it's nothing. Nothing means anything. That's, that's the Bible talking. That's the Bible. Two people genuinely experiencing the same thing together and talking about it. That, that won't always happen. This isn't a magic pill for evangelism. We're simply trying to see things from a different perspective here. Rather than trying to create a conversation uh, based on a need someone else might not even realize or think they have, instead of doing that, there are times where that's what is called for. Absolutely. There are, in other words, it's not always a conversation. Sometimes it's pure proclamation. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Right? There are times it's like that. No question. Right? But that's not normal. That's not normal, believe it or not. That's not natural. We don't know. This is not an insult. We don't know how to think of evangelism as anything other, basically, than inviting people to come to church with us. Right? You should come to church with me. That's fine. Don't stop doing that. But I'm saying... Beloved, the Bible gives room here for like it taking time. Jesus will get all his sheep. Don't worry about it. Take time when you need to take time. Solomon holds off on answers until he goes through a bunch of proverbs and riddles and questions and poems about it. If we would listen, we would hear so many of Solomon's same questions in the music in the literature, in the movies of the world, you hear those questions. They come out. One of my favorite artists of all time is a, a, a folk singer named Ray LaMontagne. I, I love his music. Uh, you've probably heard the song Trouble, on that commercial with the dog that kept trying to bury the bone and all that, that song. It, it's old. I don't know why I brought up that reference. But he has this beautiful song called, the song's actually called God Willing and the Creek Don't Rise. And he says in the opening line of the song, Carolina mountains, sun sets up in river high, uh, in rhythms high. I don't want to get old, never want to die. Where did that come from? You're looking at the Carolina mountains, you're looking at the sun setting, and you just think, I, I don't, I don't want to get old, I don't want to die. Yeah. It's right there. It's right there. He feels it. He feels it. And it's all over, just, Listen to the songs. Watch some of the movies anyway. You'll hear it. You'll hear it. William Wallace said in Braveheart, every man dies, not every man really lives. But in the context of that movie, if you don't like die by being gutted by the British army, then you didn't really live. It, it doesn't have to be that way. Right? It's just, it's, but it's everywhere. It's everywhere. So often, People are giving us a starting point and we're not listening. We're like, no, 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 I got to get to the presentation. It will come. It will come. If, if they're asking what Solomon was asking, just go with it. You and I know we have a lot of the same questions. Especially those of you who have lost ones you love more than you could put into words. And the thought of them not being there every day crushes you and breaks your heart. There's nothing wrong with that. You know that's how it feels. Don't act like that's not how it feels. When you're meeting somebody in the world that's lost a loved one and does not know where to turn, you know there's not a verse in that moment that you can take like Prozac and feel better. You know that. Don't act like it. Just grieve. Just hurt. Let it do its job. Right? Just let it work. Ecclesiastes is hospitable. 
beloved. It's hospitable. There's room here for what starts out as maybe even wrong-headed questions about God. Negative emotions. Right? For example, when a person dies, it's, it's a time to be sad. It's not supposed to be that way, but it is that way. Now what? There's a lot of ugly in the world. There's a lot of beautiful. And you'll meet people that lean towards either one more than the other. Just listen. Just listen. You'll know where to start. Ecclesiastes is so poetic. Life is pleasant. It's good to see the sun. It's local. Right? In other words, it's global and universal in its implications. But it's local in the sense that when he says there's nothing better than to enjoy your life and your spouse and your food and your work, the whole book is about what's right in front of you, no matter where you live, no matter who you are. It's earthy. It's it's physical. It's tangible. Think about how Paul preaches in the book of Acts. Right In Acts 13, to a predominantly Jewish audience, he starts with God as Israel's Redeemer. And relates to them through those words, but not in Acts 17 when he speaks to the Greeks in the Areopagus. To a people unfamiliar with those things, he starts with God as what? Creator. Creator. The God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by man. That's a totally different starting point. And yet most of us learned a way of relating to non-Christians that completely ignores the variety of the Bible's methods. We always start with God as Redeemer. We always start with, we're Christians, you're not. You're sinning. We're on God's side. You're not. That's all deductive. That that way isn't hospitable to wrong answers. It isn't hospitable to difficult questions. It's not welcoming to negative emotions. It's not welcoming to unanswered questions. It's not poetic. It's explanatory. It's not physical or earthly. It's otherworldly, right? And again... There is always a time for that, but there is also a time, according to Ecclesiastes, for this way. There's a time for everything under the sun. Paul imitates this approach, the approach of Ecclesiastes, when he's preaching to people who don't know the Bible. And again, there was a time when people knew their Bibles to some degree, and you could talk differently to them. By and large, now it is not that way. You know how many, you know how many of my friends' kids think I'm a priest? Or my kids' friends, did I say friends' kids? I don't, uh, that's not what I meant. My kids' friends think I'm a priest. Or, or to hear some of the things that they, well, your dad must not um, drink pop or so. You know what I mean? Just the craziest things. But he starts in Genesis 11 and 12 when he's talking to the Jews. He starts with Genesis 1 when he talks to the pagan Gentiles. Just like Ecclesiastes does. With a prophet, when the prophet is speaking, there's no discussion. Right? And sometimes it's the prophet that must speak. Absolutely. But with the sage, there's the assumption of an ongoing dialogue. Jesus lived here for 30 years before he preached a single sermon or did a single miracle. 30 years. Three and a half of his 30 years. 10% of his life was only what we would call ministry. Think about that. Was he wasting his time? Did he waste his life? Did he not know? Of course he did. Of course he did. Think about that, beloved. 10% of the incarnation was what we would call ministry. It's one of the many reasons Ecclesiastes is so important to us. It gives us categories 
for when we talk to secular people. That's another thing it's doing for us. They don't know Abraham or Hezekiah, but they do know life is meaningless. Without even having to try, God has given us creation and his providence over it as a bridge for conversation. Jesus didn't open up the scriptures to his disciples until he died and come back from the dead. The scriptures themselves then could not be understood at all until the Savior lived life under the sun and experienced the meaninglessness of Solomon. Only then did he provide salvation. Only then did he provide rescue from underneath the sun. The world in which you and I live was once the paradise of God that has not only been marred by a curse, but subjected to futility. Both of these things come from God. The curse and the pointlessness and the meaninglessness of life under the sun on earth is the work of God, beloved. To drive us to our only hope of rescue in Jesus Christ. This is the book of Ecclesiastes for us. So we'll get into it next week. Let me pray and then we'll sing just the first verse of this song. Father, we thank you for your word for its truth. We thank you for the merciful way that you're speaking to us and the merciful things you're saying. Lord, make us homesick. Let us long for paradise that comes from your hand that cannot be found or discovered here. Teach us to number our days, to get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to enjoy the lot you've given us and not long for more in a world that won't yield it. We will be with you no matter what. We don't have to eke meaningness or meaningfulness out of this life. Teach us the truth, Father, we ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.